Hello and welcome to Signals from the Hill. My name's Stephen Walsh. Coming up, we'll be chatting to Gareth Brooks, the creator of The Black Project, A Thousand Coloured Castles, and co-creator of The Comedy Girls and Manly Boys Annuals, all about his life and work in comics. Some Avery Hill news first. And if you're listening in the States and the plans to buy anything from our web store, the good news is that we've sourced a new local distributor over there, so our shipping costs are now significantly lower for you. Head over to averyhillpublishing.com, click on Shop, and have a look at all the great titles we can send out to you. And now, here's some information on another comics podcast you may enjoy. Oh, we've had an email asking if we wanted to do an advert for the Avery Hill podcast. Oh, that's nice of them. Does that mean we can't swear? Yeah, pretty much. So, no words like... Or sh- and definitely no. Oh, I gave real comics. Yeah, they're nice. Uh, we're the Awesome Comics Pod. You can find us at awesomecomics.podbean.com or on iTunes. And as the Awesome Comics Podcast, and buy a copy of our Awesome Comics Anthology at www.awesomecomicpod.bigcartel.com. Oh, that was very professional, wasn't it? I knew that'd go all right. Oh, Jesus. Some store news now from some of our favourite shops. On Saturday the 8th of March, Orbital Comics in London host an event to mark International Women's Day and celebrate the female superheroes of the Marvel Universe, all in conjunction with the impending arrival of Captain Marvel into cinemas. They'll have a special exhibition in store, and you can meet Captain Marvel, Ms Marvel, Black Widow, Scarlet Witch and Jean Grey in person from 2pm. Regular customers of Gosh Comics in London will know they do a tremendous range of exclusive book plates for collected editions. And their latest one for the Mr. Miracle collection, one of our Ricky's favourite comics of last year, is amazing. It's by Mitch Gerrards and will be signed by the artist as well. You can find details on how to pre-order one at goshlondon.com. This year's Small Press Day will be taking place on Saturday the 13th of July. And Nash Comics in Devon are looking for small press and zine creators that will be interested in coming to the shop for the day to get in touch. Drop them a line at info at nashcomics.co.uk And Nash Comics is spelled G-N-A-S-H-C-O-M-I-C-S And now, I'll chat with Gareth Brooks. Hello Gareth, how are you doing? I'm doing well, thank you. How are you? Good, thank you. I'm going to uh, open with one of my very standard questions, but one I'm really intrigued to, uh, to hear an answer from from you, just on the basis of the kind of work you do and the kind of influences that I've imagined you've picked up over the years but what was your sort of early history of, of comics did you have an early history of comics did you read them as a kid and, and what did you enjoy well i'm 14 now so someone my age you, you know you grew up you'd start from rupert there then you'd uh you'd, you'd, it'd be the beano and wizard and chips and buster and things like that and then it would be 2000 ad and it'd probably be ash uh, and marvel dc and then then there'd probably be a gap and you'd go to art school and then sort of start picking up the weird stuff like Daniel Cloud and, you know, kind of... I was a big fan of Daniel Cloud at art school um, and, you know, things like that. I was always kind of fascinated by manga as well, which I thought was kind of wonderfully odd, but I didn't sort of really delve into it too deeply. It was, yeah, it was stuff like... I never liked Chris Ware much. I was, like, much more Daniel Cloud sort of person. But, yeah, it was sort of... I think being the age I am, you just grew up with them and so you understood them and they were always about... I'm, you know, a similar age to a few years older, but when we were kids, they were yeah. always about. You could go to news agents and pick up British weekly humour comics and yeah. even American sort of comics at that time. Kind of, there was something kind of sort of uh, subversive about them as well. Like there, there would always be, like, from the kids' point of view, and the teacher was always a figure of fun. And also, you'd, you'd, they'd be a waste of money if parents would go read a proper book <laughs> and kind of hide them about your person and you didn't want... <laughs> 
mum to know how many 20p's you'd spent on comics this week, whatever. But yeah, they're, sort of, they're a bit more... Children's comics are too well-behaved now, but it's, it's a different time. Nowadays, parents say, you know, don't play that computer and read this uh, educational <laughs> Get them onto the comics. Yeah, there's a definite sort of uh, tradition of, of rebellion and the counterculture in uh, UK comics yeah. from, you know, as you say, the Bash Street kids through to things like 2000 AD and you had battle and action in the 70s where things were, you know, you had Charlie's War, which was, yeah. you know, a remarkably radical story for the time. I was reading that at like eight years old. And I wonder if like children's books, children's literature really has that. Now, even, even Raymond Briggs, who I was, I've always thought someone who's quite as an establishment. I was watching that program. The BBC uh, One, yeah. Sort of, yeah. Sort of, um, I was sort of bloody snow, man. Right, yeah, yeah. But it made, and I've always loved When the Wind Blows, but it made me realise like how dark it actually is. Yeah. And also like how much how much his work, despite me kind of thinking, oh, you know, he's sort of an establishment. Cuddly yeah. and... How much of him is in my work, and like Steve's work, like the old pig Steve and sort of like how much you just sort of absorb just from it being around at the time. And it is, you know, there is a definite edge to his work. Uh, as you say, like, the, you know, it's one of those things with uh, When the Wind Blows where people will happily sort of like put that in a kid's section in a bookshop or a library. And you're yeah. like, not really. No, it's like, this is a horror book more than anything. Raymond Briggs, one of the greatest comics creators that Britain's ever known, is not thought of as a comics creator at all, is he? Like, he's never classified as that. And, you know, it's it, it's quite an annoying thing for the for the medium because, like, he's a powerful figure to have on side, but he's, you know, he's seen as a, an illustrator and a, you know, kid's book author. And you're like, he, he made comics, he made comics. Yeah, he did make comics. There's a, I think there's a lot of people like that, actually, that kind of make comics and <laughs> no one quite appreciates that's what they do. I think, you know, like if you go in the National Gallery, particularly if you go to the medieval section, it's just full of comics. <laughs> <laughs> you know, scrolls coming out of their mouths and everything's yeah. in panels and that foundation of art room. Talking of foundational art experiences, you studied at the Royal College. How was and that? Did yeah. you enjoy it? Yeah, I mean, it was, yeah, it was, it was pretty amazing place to study and sort of, I think, I think it's one of these places where a lot of art schools, they kind of shelter you from the art world, you're in like a thematic box and on a lot of art, fine art courses particularly, like the art school environment is kind of the nearer opposite of the actual art world, but the Royal College doesn't do that, it's like in the art world and you get to experience full horror of <laughs> <laughs> art world and so you kind of most people have a bit of a crisis uh, I don't think I was any exception but you know I kind of like the first stirrings of the comic stuff came as you heard last time if you, if you um, listen to the Signal from the Hill every episode which you should uh, <laughs> yeah, that's where I met Steve Tillotson and sort of I don't know kind of sort of the first stirrings of kind of discontent with what we were doing and the limitations of kind of fine art practice where you can't really say, you, you've got to kind of always introduce a bit of uh, obscurity or something for the 
view as a workout. It's always like a bit of a puzzle piece of fine art. You can't just say, I'm pissed off about this, or yeah. here's a story about something that happened here. It is. You have to be, there's always an element of difficulty that you have to kind of introduce. So that, that kind of increasingly frustrated us both. But, I mean, Steve was the first, he was, quite, he was being quite modest, actually. I was listening to the episode that you did with him, and uh, it was all his idea. I mean, I didn't really... You know, as I said, I knew a bit about comics, but it was pretty much all Steve's idea to, to start making comics. And it was kind of 90, 95% his work, at least, for ages. But all I really, I was just someone to bounce ideas off of first. Well, I think that's incredibly yeah. valuable. And also, you know, from, from talking to him and also from talking to you, it does feel like it was very much something that happened in parallel to both of you. As you say, uh, you know, you're both discovering comics creators like klaus and you would be sort of exchanging tips on different books and and i'm sure swapping stuff just because you're you know you're studying so your, your budget is not limitless so you can't just buy everything so these are all valuable things aren't they to sort of build towards something yeah. so as you say maybe he was a, a bit more enthusiastic then but like there was certainly something lit within you wasn't there i mean you, you know uh, you, d- you certainly ran with it he's more of a sort of naturalist style and what he does lends itself more naturally to comics than what I did. I, I don't think it took me a long time to find a way in, as it were. Um, you know, I was making sort of sick men comics, and in the first instant, my, my first sort of solo comics were these little sick men comics called Man Man that were really just like, I mean, I was, doing, I was still doing the fine art thing as well, but they were kind of, um, I just... <laughs> People tell me a lot of story in pubs. I think I'm quite good at people confessing to me sometimes. But it's serious. People go, oh, he won't tell anyone. And they write it in a comic. Um, I would hear one, I'd go, that's Man Man comic strip. I'd, right. I'd make a strip out of it. I didn't really know what I was doing. I used to take them to... Steve lived in Bristol. And I used to get the megabus all the way to Bristol just to say, scan them in for me. <laughs> Sometimes I'd be like drawing them as he was scanning, and then can't really bother to draw them out properly. Hard to imagine there wasn't a scanner between you and Bristol at that point. <laughs> well, I, I was just—I was very. You could have saved forty-nine pence. <laughs> I was very resistant to technology at the time. Also, yeah. I think that's really interesting as well. Like, there's a natural—you have an affinity between the two of you creatively. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. for you, it's not just the process of scanning the work. It's the conversation yeah. you're having while you're scanning the work that's part of that's, the process, isn't it? Yeah, for sure. But I kind of like back in those days as well, like the scene, the small press comic scene, pretty much goes on into the old gosh in Great Russell Street. Going, it was John Chandler who was the small press guy then. And they, they had two shelves that were about 30, yeah. 30 centimetres long underneath the stairs. And, um, they full of poor rainy comics as well. Like you have to, like, <laughs> That's um, the thing, if you get one prolific person who's uh, engaged, yeah. suddenly you, the section's gone. <laughs> yeah, but I was surprised how well Man Man did. I mean, they're only a pound. Um, it kind of made me, you know, and also, like, we've done a lot of completely ruinous art shows where <laughs> you take two weeks off work to hang, sort of, invigilate this art show and probably... You have to pay rent on the place and probably have to buy flyers because it's kind of affiliate to that, really. Yeah. And stamps so you can send them out. And then you've got to buy booze for the private year. And then, and then literally no one comes at all. I remember that literally happened. 
I sat there for two weeks and not a single person came in. Oh my God, yeah. And also, like, we did one show once he was in it too, and then um, we worked for months on this thing. And the private view night is still the only time I've ever seen it snow and thunder and lightning at the same time. And no one really came to that one. <laughs> you so, just look at it all going, I mean, I don't know what we've done, but God is furious. <laughs> so, like, we... You know, we've made these comics, we didn't really know what to do with them. But a friend of a friend, Anthony Esmond, who does um, the awesome, awesome Comics podcast, yeah. Friends of the he, show. He kind of took us under his wing, and he, like, I don't think we really realised that he paid for a table at this Comic Con, which kind of took it over. But it, we were like, this is brilliant. We, we get to sit here, and it's warm, and we're not really paid any money. And people are coming up to us and giving us money. <laughs> and we get to go away. And then, we get, you know, we had enough to have a drink on the train on the way home. Some cans of beer. We were delighted. And it just seemed like such a much better way of... Tony's quite an unsung, unsung hero, I think, on the on the small press scene. Partly because, yeah. like, he doesn't... Like, he'd never tell that story uh, in terms of, yeah. like, giving someone help like that. Um, do you know what I mean? He, he, like, and like, just the show alone is such a, a great sort of promotional thing for UK comics, and he like yeah. blogs and stuff. Like, they really do put themselves out there and, and help people along. Well, he was certainly very generous on that occasion. But yeah, like, and I don't know. I kind of got the bug off. And also, there's something about doing it all yourself, like printing it out on a home printer, folding it all, like taking them all, taking them all to the comic shop or wherever you're trying to get. Yeah, them. You, you own the means of production, the means of distribution. Yeah. Like it's all on you, which is you know not a lot of pressure, but it you know it does fall or stand with you. But the nice thing yeah. is, it's also within your control. You're not sending files off waiting to see if some what's going to come back. You sort of made it, and yeah, absolutely. And you, it's sort of like I think it, it costs about five p to make, so right. that, was, that was a good profit margin. Same as uh, the the comics reader, uh, the one pound price point is is yeah. like tremendous. It's such a sort of a great, you know, just from a retail point of view. We had the comics reader on the till point at Gosh, and it was so easy just to point to yeah. people because, it, as well, it's a great sort of uh, gateway drug. You know, you've got a lot of yeah. different creators in there, a lot of different styles, a lot of great stuff as well. It's not just um, know, a lot of people, it's a lot of good people. Um, so yeah. it was real easy to sort of put it in people's hands. And who was it that took the wheelbarrow around Glastonbury? Uh, oh, that was me. Yeah, yeah I was going to say, that was, was that yeah. you with the. Yeah, and, that, and it flew out, didn't it? It was, it was the Green Man Festival. Sorry, Green um, Man, sorry, yeah, yeah. yeah. It did, like, I mean, sort of had enough, had a lot of pounds in my pocket. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> worst dream, worst situations to be in, like. Yeah, it's, it's all about 500, I think. Yeah, yeah. And it's that thing as well, uh, that really interesting sort of thing where you, you sort of, like, uh, you've not got a table and you're not going around. The, the wheelbarrow thing is part of it, isn't it? Part of the theatre of it. Uh, yeah. sort of taxing people are like what you know they can't ignore it like what's yeah. going on here I have to know what this guy's doing with a wheelbarrow so exactly. <laughs> you've got them engaged and that's half the battle and then you sort of go here's a brilliant thing for a pound and everyone's got a pound haven't they if they're at a show like that yeah. so they're ready to go and that's also amazing. I feel like that experience as well was it made me realise what what an untapped market for comics there is oh, yeah. because so many people are saying you know oh I didn't know that there was still stuff like this this reminds me of the underground scene in the 70s or 80s and things like that so, yeah, it was kind of, that was a real, that was, when was that, 2013, I think. 
it's a it's a, a legendary moment i've um i've certainly you know told people about it uh, before i think i've yeah. i've attributed it to everyone who was a contributor to the comics reader apart from me <laughs> just so guys, I think Alex Potts took a wheelbarrow around and I played the show every time as well. <laughs> I think Richard Country took a wheelbarrow around the V Festival. <laughs> Shed Seven were trying to be heard, but he was just hawking the comic reader over the top of them. It was uh, talking about experimental takes on distribution there. But in terms of production as well, I want to just go back to the Royal College for a second. Like, yeah. you know, one of the things that always strikes me about your work is the different methods used to make it, the different materials mm. and techniques. And I wonder if that's something that, 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 that sort of before the Royal College or was, was being there, did you do like other modules while you were there to sort of experiment with different forms or was it something you do pretty much off your own back and on your own time? I think for the first few years when I was making comics, I was just using, I think I thought, I'm going to make some comics. I went straight to the art shop, bought some paper and pen and just sort of started doing it. But it was when um, I was involved with the alternative press group and we went over, we started travelling a bit and we went to Anglia and we went to the old SPX in, um, in uh, Sweden. Oh. And, I, you know, it, was, it exposed me to the European scene. And over there, because, I mean, the scene at that time, in the 2010 sort of time, was pretty bad. I mean, it was basic. <laughs> there, was, there was little shoots of interesting stuff. And I think, like, a lot of people that now have, you know, are in the, the shops, you know, in, on the graphic novel shelf in foils or whatever, started about that time or around about that time. But really the quality was quite low. Just coming back from Angoulême, having seen that over there, you know, comics are treated like an art form. There's no question. Of, yeah. You know, there's no one saying, oh, what like Superman? Oh, what like the demon? People get it. It's just, it's yeah. a different cultural space, isn't it? Same thing with, with Japan, isn't it? Like, they occupy yeah. a different cultural space. They're thought of in a different way. And that's a huge, yeah. you know, again, tapping into what we were talking about with Raymond Briggs earlier. Like, he can't be a yeah. comics creator. This is too good. It's essentially yeah. the horrific sort of underlying yeah. argument, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, in, in Angolan, they've got bronze statue of Herge outside the comics gallery. That's <laughs> what's really <laughs> much fun. So, but... Yeah, you know, over there, people were using paint and printmaking and, um, you know, all sorts of different mediums, uh, sort of screen print. Everything that I'd learned at art college, and I just remember just on the train home, thinking, why didn't I think, why did I just, you know, why have we been using pens this whole time when I know how to do a liner cut, when I know how to use embroidery, when I know how to do a screen print, when I know how to use all this stuff. Like what? And all of a sudden, it just all... All these possibilities. I realise what the kind of young medium comics are, and there's so much that hasn't been done before, particularly compared with art. You know, like Duchamp basically broke it when he did the arrival. Yeah, everyone's just chasing after that ever since, yeah. aren't they? <laughs> but comics are so different. Isn't it? I think that not only is there a lot that hasn't been done in comics before, but there's a lot that's in sequential art, if you want to call it that, that's been forgotten. That's sort of in Roman stone reliefs or Greek pottery or stained glass windows or tapestries. There's a lot that hasn't really, you know, it's been kind of culturally forgotten just because there was a moment when comics became Superman and sort of, you know, I forgot that there was sequential art before that. One of the things that definitely gives, I think, comics not an edge, you don't get into a competition with other art forms, do you? But one of the things that people sort of forget about comics, say again, something like, let, let's say fine art, for example, you've yeah. sort of got it as a medium 
but there's also mechanics to it as well, which I think yeah. makes it so much more interesting for me. You know, paintings, you know, there is technique in it and there is meaning and there's, you know, a lot of things to appreciate to it. But yeah. with comics, you immediately have, and, you know, you can have narrative in a, a, an image, but the mechanics of comics are so sort of more sophisticated than, yeah. than that. And the limitations of the page then add another element to it. What can you do? How can you do it? So I do think it's sort of, as you say, such a rich medium and still sort of being explored all the time. Yeah. I mean, I think you can, like, be a comics Yeah. 
That's the. That was, that was 2008, I think, or nine. I think that was the first year that I decided to quit the making what I consider fine art. Because I, I think as well, like, by that point, all my best ideas and even some of my kind of fine art techniques or whatever were beginning to go into comics anyway. And also, ironically, I was, I was sort of being asked to be in shows and stuff that I would quite <laughs> like to have been invited to. And I'd get an email and be like, oh, look, you know, they want my art. And they'd be like, no, we just want this about your comic. And that would be happy, but <laughs> There was a bit of that as well, kind of like, you know, I studied all this time to make it very serious artwork, you know, and then, like, assuming there's a stick man doing a poo. <laughs> <laughs> yes, this is genius. <laughs> but, yeah, that's sort of about 2008. And that's an so, interesting yeah. piece where it sort of bridges, you know, what you were saying about stick man, people telling you stories and you mm. presenting them, you know, that's very much along those lines, isn't it? It's sort of overheard conversations and sort of lived experience yeah. presented but, you know, with more sophisticated illustration. And, yeah, I think at that time, I'd, it's sort of like I'd kind of graduated from the Royal College and I didn't know what to do. And I kind of ended up working in this warehouse. And I sort of worked a succession of really, really awful jobs. I don't know how. I I think there must have been some kind of subliminal self-punishment <laughs> sort of <laughs> thing going on. I didn't think I was, I don't know, worthy of... <laughs> working a good job. So, yeah, I had, I had a lot of years of sort of being in these really masculine environments, you know, like, met these very strange van drivers who kind of had their own weird way of looking at the world. And, yeah, kind of writing it down and making a comic out that somehow made it bearable, you know, I could somehow kid myself on an observer rather than a kind of <laughs> participant in this awful job. <laughs> but there is some, some interesting, like you, that, that page where it's the, the Polaroids up on the wall of old work dues, yeah. and everyone looks so happy, and you're like, are they happy, or are they just happy that they're having a drink? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Are they just happy not to be at work, you know, rather yeah. than, I, I love these people, it's like, oh, I love the fact that work's over for the day, you know, there's definitely uh, an element of that to it, isn't it? In fact, as well, that no one could remember who they were. You know, the, <laughs> the memory of the place is so short. This is quite, quite hugging you. No idea. Yeah. <laughs> could be any one of 15 people who worked there in yeah. 1992. And, uh, you know, you'd know the chronology better than me. Um, mm. At what point were you doing uh, Manly Boys and Company Girls with Steve? That sort of... Uh, that would have been about 2009, I think, for Manly Boys. And then we sort of... Yeah, I think we printed a, a whole bunch and then I kind of sold out and we didn't really do anything more with them. And then I was talking to Ricky and Dave and they were saying, have you got anything? So I sent them that and then I said, we've always wanted to do like a, a companion, you know, because like, it's, you know, for anyone that doesn't know, it's kind of like a pastiche, I suppose, on the, the boys' annual, which kind of, you used to get Usually, grandma used to give to you. Well, it's interesting yeah. when you mentioned earlier that like Rupert the Bear was one of your first influences, yeah. and there's definitely that that feel of you know grand old Britain. For sure, you know, like and, you know, you, yeah, you usually get get that sort of thing with your grandparents, and then you know, reading back, you realise what a like, post-imperial, well, or imperial toshit was. Yeah, and it's subtle 
well, not even subtle, not subtle at all, like gender roles <laughs> being forced on you. Know, yeah, men prepare for work. That sort of well, thing, exactly, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. So, it's but, like, you did such a great job of, of satirising that as well. Like, it's yeah. like, so. well, also It's also that thing of, like, having the particular eye for not only, you know, the messages and the, the things that are being presented, but also just the presentation of the page. Like, it was so evocative for me reading through them recognising that layout, the way that the text and the, the, the images work together yeah. in that particular context. So it's that, <laughs> it's that great thing of, like, if you want to satirise something or produce an abstract version of it, you really have to understand the fundamentals of how it works to take it apart, don't you? That's the... You have to really get the details right. Mm. Yeah, um, just things like typography, isn't it? There's that very particular 1950s kids' annual clean typography, quite, you know, Clean and straight for the boys, nice and ornate for the girls, and never yeah. the twain shall meet sort of thing. <laughs> yeah, that kind of like wiggly handwriting. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, that was a lot of fun to do. But I think both of them, we, we did them quite quickly. Each one only took three months. I think as well, with that, you, there has to be that sort of energy to it, doesn't there? I yeah. think you can overthink it and over-embroider it if you uh, did sort of take too long over it. The temptation would be to sort of like, you know, load an extra joke on that doesn't need to be there and the whole thing topples over. For sure, and it's it's nice working with someone else because then they go, oh look, I've done five pages and go, I'm letting the side down. I'm going to do five. <laughs> right, right, right. So I'm going to do ten, and then I send them to Stephanie and done everything since. You know, kind of like. Jogs you a lot. Yeah, no, definitely. Yeah, that, that's another thing. You know, I was saying earlier about it's all on you to produce. I think that's sort of like focused even more firmly if you're part of a partnership. Just because it's interesting, actually. Yeah, how few sort of partnerships there are, really. I mean, you know, because back in the day, loads of people were working in the same room on a comic. Yeah. But now it's very much more. I think King Louis Lab are the only people I can think of, really, that are kind of younger and really yeah. worked as a pair. Yeah. Yeah, it's not really it's not really done like that anymore. I think that's a bit. Yeah, it's a bit of a shame, really. Yeah, it's interesting. I'm trying to think of, of other, other people who would like pass pages between themselves to sort of complete the comic. But yeah, as you say, it is. I think also it's just a thing where where the whole you know process has been simplified so much. Um, mm. There's less less need to sort of lean on people and you know and just having access to things like equipment and printing. Yeah, and yeah, it does sort of mean you can streamline, which means the the sort of community things are much more important now than ever just in terms of mm. like bringing people together to sort of talk about how they're making things and what they're making yeah absolutely because it can be a very lonely and isolating job <laughs> especially when you're kind of up against it and you've got a deadline chain to your desk yeah that's the thing isn't it like you know the the, the flip side of that is if it's on you it get, and you, you suddenly stop there's no one to kick you back into it you have to do that yourself yeah. or you know you get friends who will ask and stuff but it's not the same as someone going i'm waiting on these pages to i suppose the big sort of game changer for you in terms of your comics career was winning the myriad first graphic novel yeah, prize would that be fair yeah which was a huge surprise and because you know as well at, at the time that i won it i was traveling i sort of like i was in australia i think i kind of like got so because at that time in the scene was interesting as well because there was like these new publishers suddenly starting to come up like Nobrow and Caper started doing graphic novels in earnest and sort of self-made here were making themselves their presence felt and but it, it seemed like they weren't really signing up anyone that had been 
doing it for ages, it seemed like just <laughs> like these new kids just out of art school. And it's a bit depressing. I think like me and my girlfriend at the time, she's like, let's get out of London. So when we went travelling, it's the kind of old, what was it, Andy Warhol's shit, and like, you know, to, in order to be successful, you've got to stop one thing to be successful. <laughs> the moment you kind of give up, things start happening. Right, right. Yeah, so I kind of, I won, I won, you know, I looked at the, the shortlist as well, and I just thought, because you know, like in the Mercury Music Prize, there's always one jazz album that wins. But <laughs> <laughs> well, they want to that, show that they've got a range of different things. Yeah, yeah. yeah. All these other ones are like, they're, A, they're recognisable as comics. B, they, they seem to me to be really professional. And then mine's got this kind of freestyle, embroidered liner cup thing <laughs> without panels or speech bubbles or anything. Yeah, I guess we've sort so, of buried the lead here. I sort of alluded to it earlier, the sort of yeah. the various forms and techniques uh, that you use. You know, I've, I've made uh, a list. I'm sure you can add a couple of things as well. But, I've, you know, I've seen comics and work of yours that involves embroidery, using yeah. crayons, lino cuts, incorporating pressed flowers, uh, yeah. fire, adding fire yeah. to uh, <laughs> uh, the page. Um, and, uh, you know, for people who aren't aware of it, The Black Project is... Um, I, I can give you the sales spiel that I used to use in Gosh when I was hand-selling oh. the book uh, to people, um, <laughs> where I, I, I say to people, it's a book that combines embroidery and lino cuts to tell the mm -hmm. story of a teenage boy who decides to make his own girlfriend uh, using objects that he finds around the place. And yeah. has a few goes, each one becoming anatom anatomically more correct. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it's such a brilliant premise, you know, just be, you know, to be able to do that sort of elevator pitch. And people are like, what? And I'm like, have a look. <laughs> it doesn't work on everyone. No, I, well, that, that's the thing as well. I'm only handing this book to people where I'm like, you're on side, you know. <laughs> no one's going, I'm looking for a, a birthday present for my nephew. He's uh, 12. <laughs> Let me get you The Black Projects by Gareth Brooks. <laughs> it is a book that <laughs> sees the protagonists create more and more anatomically correct uh, versions of women based on his new sexual discovery. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's got such a hook to it. Like, the look of it is unlike anything else. And then that premise is like, you know, that that's not your typical book, is it? It's like, oh, another another book about a teenage boy making, you know, increasingly anatomically correct versions of women for him to uh, explore his, <laughs> you know, <laughs> emerging sexual identity. Yes, yeah, another one, I'm afraid. Put, put it with the others, put it with the others. Because <laughs> it's funny, look, when you when you make a book, you, you kind of, you think it's one thing and then you realise it's something else. I, I kind of thought it was very funny. Oh, I mean, it's, Sorry, yeah. it's, it's, it's a very dark comedy, but like, that's yeah, absolutely, I mean, it's kind of a horror book, really. Yeah, but I mean, there's no way you're going to have a teenage boy making women out of bits of scrappy finds around the place. It's not going to be hilarious, and that like that's. Uh, but also, I'm glad that I got the, I got I got it right. I think the tone because it, oh, could, that could, it could go very wrong. Yeah. Like well, yeah. also as well, like it could have it could have gone very wrong in the sense of it just being like not just, but uh, you know, it, it would have worked perfectly well as a silly farcical piece about this kid who's like you know uh, getting things wrong and then more and more right. But like, there's a real poignancy to the story as a whole as well. There's a real sort of emotional heft to it, which I think is you know a remarkable thing to be able to do with that sort of premise. I, I, just, I think I just made it quite relatable, and that kind of, the voice of the kind of boy that 
is awkward, or, you know, and sort of just gets sex things really wrong. And <laughs> he's trying so hard. I think, you know, lots of people relate to that. I'm really glad that the readership is like, you know, it doesn't put women up. No, uh, no, because... Yeah, no, I think it's something where, you know, there's nothing... The, the kid isn't horrific or hateful, is he? He's just, like, he's no, a bit lost. Like, he's not a bad person. Yeah. He's, you know, yeah. just just lost and trying to find his way, like any of us are. But, like, this is his way of doing it. Another mm. thing that I think really works for it as a, as a piece is uh, the fact that the embroidery is there is really sort of fresh and original. But, of course, it sort of that then ties into, you know, it's a book about craft that's made using yeah. a craft. So it's definitely that sort of intertwining of, of the form and the, the content. Isn't yeah. And I think that's something that I, the, one of the things I did take with me from art school is that the method, the process is part of the delivery of the concept. And quite often I'll have an idea and I love the idea, I'll have a story and it takes years to kind of just suddenly realise that yes, I should do it this way and that this is the medium I should do it in. Um, but yeah, I think it's important to get right because I can't imagine that book really being done in just pens and stuff. You know. I mean, I, I, I can, yeah. but I, I, I think it's definitely <laughs> elevated by the fact that there, it is embroidered. I do think that it really adds a visual element and, as I say, an underlying sort of coherence to the whole piece as well. Oh, Similarly to uh, A Thousand Coloured Castles, do you want to let the listeners know what the premise of that one is? It's about a woman that suffers from, it's well, something my grandma suffered from, actually. It's like a rare, well, it's not even, actually, it's not rare at all. Lot, lots of people have it, but very few people admit to it. I'd never heard it's, of it, and it would have been a really interesting premise if it was a fictionalised condition. Nah, but the fact that it is real, it, again, yeah. added another layer to it. I was like, I've never even heard this. So, sorry, I've, I've cut a question. What was Charles Bonnet syndrome. It's, right. it's a kind of condition of the eye where if, you're, um, if you've got macular degeneration of the eye, you're going blind, perhaps, or you're losing your sight. The brain kind of makes the bit that, you know, tries to overcompensate. It sort of fills um, in the space. Exactly, yeah. and... It leads to like quite really weird hallucination, like absolutely bizarre. The typical kind of Charles Bonnie hallucination might involve brightly coloured figures with like furniture hats, <laughs> kind of like running, like parading past the window or something like that. There's like quite often cartoon characters. Uh, there's quite often. I mean, my grand had burning cars, soldiers in the garden. Like science fiction buildings, yeah, which is yeah. weird. I don't think she ever saw a science fiction film. Well, that's that the thing, isn't it? Like, you can understand the, the sort of drive of the brain to want to fill in the gaps, but it doesn't know what connection to make, does it? It's sort of like <laughs> filling in the space, but it's like it's got like random clippings that it's just dropping yeah. in without sort of trying to polish off the edges. Yeah, so I kind of I thought about, you know, what if, what, because it, you know, set in suburbia a bit like the Black Project and weird stuff. <laughs> at least, at least, at least from the suburbs I come from, weird stuff seems to happen there. I, I thought it'd be nice to have this kind of psychedelic kitchen sink, Evelyn Ernesty type book, where it was hard to unpick the kind of psychedelia from the sort of natural weirdness of suburbia. And that's the um, thing, isn't it? Like, you know, what a gift for a visual storyteller, you know, to to use yeah. something like that, where you can kind of wherever you want to draw, you can draw. And it's based on this misfiring of the brain anyway. So yeah. there's nothing right or wrong. So you can sort of cut loose with it, can't you? Yeah. And I was thinking about kind of, you know, you have the unreliable narrator mm. in, 
in books, but if you'd be great, you know, to have an unreliable narrator whose very sort of vision of reality was unreliable and you had to decide what you wanted to believe was happening and hopefully get into a really uncanny space where you weren't quite sure what was going on. And again, sort of feeding into that through form, you produce that with the crayons where you sort of will, will sort of draw the image out in crayon, cover it up with black crayon, scrape it away and it sort yeah. of softens the image and just makes everything a bit fuzzy but brings the colours out in a different way according to, you know, how it's been scratched. So, again, you've got this sort of thing where there's representational art in there but you've literally removed a layer to add a layer. Yeah, and it's kind of a, it's like a, a metaphor for going blind mm. as well, thing. And it's kind of each page is this little ritual where you have to sort of quite violently scratch with a knife, you know, the top layer, something that you've already kind of effaced, I suppose. You know, now you have to kind of try and sort of excavate it. It's, it's weird, kind of. I tend to be only interested in the work that I'm doing, and like when people talk to me about the work that I did two years ago. Yeah, and imagine yeah. it's the sort of thing where the worst thing happened in the middle of it, you're going, What am I doing? You have to just have that momentum <laughs> to sort of like carry yeah. through and go, I'm doing oh, it's you know, I'm doing this, this is fine. It's, it's done. It's what am I done? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's just another weird but I'm so um I'm so grateful to Corinne and Miriam for publishing this weird book. Because <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure anyone would take that kind of risk on me. I don't, I don't think they make a huge amount of money or anything. So it's, um, it's well, great. They, 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 they always sold steadily for us at Gosh. But yeah. I think, it, you know, for, 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 for the point of view of a, of a retailer, um, yeah. books are like a gift because they're so fresh and so interesting. And it's so easy to sort of talk to a customer about them and engage them because yeah. who can hear, who can listen to those descriptions of a book and go, yeah. I mean, he's like, he's like, you know, oh, I'm, I'm a bit sort of like bored of hearing about, you know, this particular uh, book about macular degeneration and hallucinations. And, <laughs> yeah, and, and again, the look of it is 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 so fresh. It's interesting you talk about, um, you, you were saying just then about not wanting to think about books like that. I, I guess you're thinking in terms of the the, the process of making them because you have revisited both those books in one of your more recent zines afterwards. Yeah, which is another one I can't forget that I made. So, yeah, <laughs> That's okay. why I'm here. I'm here just to remind you of the things that you've made. With that, I think, like, m most artists, I think, at the moment, writers, they kind of want to do something that's a bit... Because, you know, it's a weird time to be alive. I think sometimes it's overstated. <laughs> I'll get bored of the work. In these troubled times, right, right, can't right. sit forward to, you know use toilet paper or go for a walk in the park or something like that. And I think that it's like a bit over the top, you know, the Black Death killed half of all people in Europe. So that's probably worth, you know, so we're not quite there. But at the same time, I did want to kind of do something that said something about now. So I thought, wouldn't it be funny if both of my books that I've written so far were kind of had a kind of dystopian future sort of um, sequel. So in, it was a kind of reversal. So in the Black Project one, which is about the age that I am now, again, and in the, in this future, um, everybody has relationships with like sex robots or yeah dolls essentially, and he's the only one that still fancies real women. <laughs> And yeah, there's a couple of bits again where he's, and, and it's an interesting thing where in uh, the Black Project, his greatest fear is being found out. 
because people would see what he was doing there was so disgusting. And mm. in afterwards, he has these desires for human women. And the last thing he wants is people to find out because it's seen as so disgusting. Yeah. Yeah. He can't catch a break, this guy. He's just always yeah. in the wrong place. Yeah. <laughs> and then the, the Thousand Colour Castles ones, like everyone basically up in virtual reality, kind of accept for um, Miriam, the main character of Thousand Colour Castles, who's the only one that sees the truth, which is that, you know, the world's descended into kind of fascist state, police state, uh, and everything's getting blown out. I mean, that, I, I kind of just wanted to do that just so I could destroy the suburban town where I come from. It's a bit like H.G. Wells, apparently. He, I mean, he set the world of worlds in the area where I grew up, and apparently he, uh, he cycled around looking for towns that he thought deserved to be destroyed. So... I would feel guilty if uh, a real-life imitated art. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, but, Gareth, think of the sales. I mean, it was... <laughs> <laughs> One of the things I sort of looked at in preparation for this interview was uh, a recent thing that you posted on Twitter, which is from Ararang TV. Uh, oh. <laughs> a visit you took to an island off the coast of uh, South Korea. Which is yeah. absolutely fascinating. Yeah, I mean that was that was such a weird because I, I was involved um, in 2017 with a British Council project in Korea, so I went to Seoul a couple of times, and the producer from the TV station happened to see the exhibition that we made. This, this project called Storytelling City, and kind of I think it's still online somewhere, but I think it was sort of more you know more Korean things, so oh, people over here didn't get to see it. But, uh, yeah, this producer saw it and. Just before Christmas 2017, they said, you know, do you want to fly out and do the show? And I was like, yeah, OK. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, I don't know, it was, a, it was a funny experience. There was, like, I didn't really... There was this one sort of junior camera guy who was a really nice guy, but he was, he was just a kid, really. I think he was about 18 or 19. And he was the only one that spoke any English, and his English wasn't brilliant, it was OK. He, he watched a lot of Doctor Who, so <laughs> that's where he learned English. But... Um, yeah, we, I never really knew what was happening for about five days. We just drove around, and then they go, right, we're getting out, and then we'd be in this different, amazing place. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, a lot of it was filming me going into places over and over again, <laughs> or walking up the street being followed by a drone, or <laughs> the same conversation over and over again. <laughs> yeah, like then filming me making art, which is really hard, because, like, you know, I'll do a drawing, and I'll be like, it's finished. And they're like, no, we've still got to film more. <laughs> got to do more to keep drawing. Find <laughs> new ways to, to make, just so they can do a close-up and stuff, which is very disconcerting for an artist. Of course, yeah, yeah. No, I, yeah. Thought it was, I thought it was fascinating, just the, the combination of you talking to other visiting artists and resident artists, and the place itself is kind of magical, mm. isn't it? Like, what's there and... Well, I was talking to uh, Mike, uh, Mike Medaglia, who uh, yeah. li lived in Korea for a year, yeah, yeah. and he, he visited the place, and he said, mm -hmm. and this doesn't come up in documentary, he reckons there's two sex parks there. Um, there is? Yeah, yeah I, I and he was like, it's, not, yeah. it's a taboo subject in, in Korean society to discuss yeah. sex. So basically, with people getting engaged in they sort of go there to learn about the mechanics of things, which is quite sort of black project, isn't it? It's quite, yeah, it's like a kind of honeymoon thing. Yeah. But yeah, uh, uh, they told me that it was there, and I was like, um, 
I was like, oh, I really want to go to that. So right at the end, after we finished filming, they drove me to it and then they waited in the car while I went back. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't want to film it. That, that's what, yeah. there, there was one bit, there's one bit in one of the shots where there's like um, one of the, the, the stone statuary figures, um, mm. but he's bent over with his trousers down. Yeah, uh, but that was in the bit about sort of the sort of guardian uh, spirits, and I was like, yeah. I mean, they could well be a tradition in Korea of like guardian spirits just farting to keep evil away. I don't know, um, but when I heard that, I was like, maybe it was a sexual thing. Who knows? But um, yeah, incredible place. The volcanic structures and yeah, uh, the, the 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 flora as well, just the, the amount and variety of colours and yeah. you know, remarkable place, isn't it? And the, that kind of well, the most interesting person on that thing was it was the calligraphy guy was great, but then the shamanic, the external yeah. shamanism, yeah, yeah. it's really fascinating. Yeah, kind of you know they've got these kind of micro religions that are like kind of based on these stories of the people, the community, small well, communities. As I was watching it, and as I as he was talking about, as you say, sort of micro-religions, I was like, this is very Gareth Brooks, isn't it? This is, mm. uh, there's a book here somewhere. <laughs> yeah, and then there was about a year where I didn't hear anything, and I kind of thought, that it probably, it's probably been on TV, I just don't know about it, but then they put it up on YouTube, and I got like a, a message saying, here it is. I was like, wow. <laughs> Fascinating, well worth a look, as I say, if people want to check out your Twitter feed. Yeah. Um, I just yeah, want to wrap it, things up by having a quick word about the South London Comic and Zine Fair, if that's all right. Yeah. Well, I'm not going to do that this year. I was going to say, in my year, you're going to do a, a fallow year, yeah. they call it, didn't they? Yeah, I mean, I learned when I was with the alternative press that you can't let stuff like that get in the way of your, of your work because it just doesn't work. It makes you go crazy. <laughs> so I've got a lot of stuff on that I want to do this year and a couple of books that I want to get off the ground. So, yeah, not this year, but uh, we'll be back again next year, I think. It's just like... It is so. I, don't, I think like the first one I did just went so smoothly. <laughs> it was just like chance. And then when I did the second one, you know, it didn't it didn't go quite as smoothly. I just realised how much how much work it was. So I think I, I need what, to. What I would like to point out at this point is I helped you with the first one. I didn't help you with the second you one. Did, so yeah. who knows? Who uh, knows, uh, Gareth? There you go. That's what it was. <laughs> that is. That's but no, um, as someone who uh, sort of helped you out with the first one. Um, yeah. You know, uh, it was a remarkable day, a uh, remarkable show. Like, really, yeah. you know, having the, the communal table was great, great range yeah. of people, great level of people in terms of who was there. The, the space itself is a gift. You know, it's yeah. really sort of uh, uh, tremendous. And, you know, doing something like in South London is nice as well. Yeah. Where, you know, East and London has its fair share, Central London has its fair share, you know, South London. And I know that there'll be a lot of people that are disappointed that I'm not. You know, it's not coming back this year, but, you know, but bear, bear with me. <laughs> I think I wanted, to, I wanted to show, you know, it's a kind of an old school kind of thing. It's the sort of thing that doesn't happen so much in London anymore. Um, and I'm really into the kind of commune table idea. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think, there's, I think there's a gap for what bothers me a bit about the scene right now is that, you know, I think young creators think that they've got to do thought, thought bubbles on this the first show, and it, it I remember, like, once, the one time I was doing this big comic, I think it was one of the ones in the Bishop's Gate, the Liverpool Street space, which was really big, and I was, I think I was talking with Joey DC, and then there was a guy next to us, who'd never done one before, 
and he had loads of copies. He had boxes and boxes. Yeah, these yeah, yeah. Two issues that he'd made, and um, so you know, oh, you know, and they look really good. They're yeah. really good quality comics. So you know, you have the normal. How many have you printed? And he was like, oh, I've, I've only gone for two thousand print runs at first, and I've only bought a thousand of each with me. Yeah. Go yeah, and he goes um, yeah. Like I've heard this sort of you know ten fifteen thousand people come to this. So if only ten percent of them buy my comic, then I should you know sell seven hundred or whatever. Can't do the maths. But, right, you know, but yeah, he was. God, like his, he's worried he's, a, he's not bought ten, enough. He's kicking himself for not bringing the other thousand. But yeah, his <laughs> his expectations were completely you know and. <laughs> He, I never saw like yourselves and obviously Henry Miller who uh, who did the yes. Catford show um yeah. Catford shows you know they they're perfect right. aren't they in terms of being great entry points but also great entry points for the public as well like you know we were yeah. talking earlier about people finding comics and the comics reader being a great sort of gateway to that like if you're someone who hasn't read comics, doesn't have an interest in comics, you're not going to get on a train to Leeds. To, like, yeah. And Thought Bubble's a tremendous show. And you're not going to get yeah. you know, a train up to the lakes and like, they have some brilliant people there. You're not going to do that. You're not even going to go to Elkaf or you know, you're not going to go out of your way to do it. But like Stanley Halls is like bang in the middle of uh, you know, a big residential community. And like you, you know, you had the posters up all around and really good word of mouth in the mm. local area. You know, Henry the Blythe Hill Tavern is uh, a sort of hub for a lot of creative endeavours, so it's a sort of place that, you know, so people just go to the pub or they're going down, you know, uh, Norwood High Street, you know, yeah. they can stumble upon it. It's that sort of show, and yes. I think those are priceless. Yeah, and it's free to get in. Absolutely, yeah. 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 I just think, like, I think actually some comic critics don't realise that not enough people read comics to really make it a, an industry, to make yeah. it something... I mean, it looks like an industry, but <laughs> people don't realise that, you know, a lot of it is run by people that have day jobs and are just kind of like self-sabotaging enthusiasts. <laughs> God bless them. God bless them. But that's it, we need them, and you need to have an arena for them to operate in. And I think, yeah. you know, shows like yours are a great one for, for people, as you say, to start to ease themselves in, yeah. you know. I think we all need to do something, even if it's just nagging your local library to get more graphic novels. All of us need to do a little something to try and, you know, like broaden the audience for what we do. That's my little um, contribution. You've done two, like two well, and then a year off. It's fine. They don't do Glastonbury every year, do they? No. <laughs> you've got to let the grass grow. Exactly. Back. Yeah, you've got to give the, the ground a, a chance to rest. Yeah. <laughs> Gareth, thanks so much for talking to us. Well, thank you, it's been lots of fun. Um, I'm just going to point people to www.gbrooks.com, and that's G-B-R-O-O-K-E-S.com, and at Brooks underscore Gareth, so that's at B-R-O-O-K-E-S underscore 
G-A-R-E-T-H, to find your website and your Twitter feed, both of which are filled with uh, wonderful things. I've took the uh, time to spell those out just so people don't end up inadvertently landing yeah. with some country in Western Star. And, you know, it's a, the bane of your life, I'm sure. <laughs> if you, um, yeah, if, you, if you're listening to country in Western, you've, you've gone the wrong show. But, uh, I want to start a rumour that you're, you're actually called Garth Brooks and you added an E to each name just to differentiate yourself so, from him, just to sort of rebrand. Yeah, my, my dream... Which I, I won't ever achieve, but my ultimate ambition would be one day Garth Brooks Googles himself and it says, Did you mean Gareth Brooks? <laughs> he gets to find out like, how it feels. I, I'd like to extend on that, and uh, Garth Brooks does that, and he goes, This Black Project sounds incredible. And then he uh, gets it, and suddenly he becomes, and this would be a good contribution to comics culture globally as well, suddenly Garth Brooks is talking about comics. In a way yeah. that no one anticipated five years before. He could write a song about it. That's it. I, t- I, t- I mean, A Thousand <laughs> Coloured Castles is a great title for a song. Uh, let's yeah, just put that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah Garth, if, if you're listening, Garth. <laughs> <laughs> well, he listens to this. <laughs> yeah, Gareth, thanks yeah. so much. Cheers. I will, I'm sure, talk to you or see you soon. Thanks Take, care. Take care. Thanks to Gareth again for talking to us, and thank you for listening. See you next month. This show is a Holdfast Network production. Go to holdfastnetwork.com for other programs you may enjoy.